0: Hello and welcome to this lecture on networks. My name is Richard Harvey and I'm one of the professors here at Gresham College and greetings live from Barnard's Inn which is the uh, the HQ of the uh, Gresham Enterprise. And um, as usual, when you're talking about a big topic like networks, there's a lot of selectivity that goes on. So uh, let me just sort of get out, out of the way first. I'm not going to talk about everything, but I'm going to talk about what I think are some key developments in the development of the internet. And I thought I'd start sort of right at the beginning, as it were, with uh, this fascinating record taken from the Library of uh, Congress, which you, you might not be able to read on the screen, but it's um, the first. Uh, one of Samuel Morse's telegraphs which was sent um, in 1844, May 1844, he demonstrated the telegraph in the US uh, Congress and he sent a message to his uh, collaborator Alfred Vale who was in Baltimore and this was the strange uh, words that he chose, what hath God wrought was his uh, question that I think he took from uh, what sounds like Old Testament uh, numbers doesn't it Uh, which is the message he sent. And um, to prove it was received, uh, Alfred Vail sent it back. He sent back the same message. That's an example of uh, ARQ, which is an important part of the uh, Internet, which we will uh, discuss in a moment. So that was um, sort of telegraphy. And I picked that out to point out that data comms or data communication is considerably, considerably older than the internet, but if we just spool forward to the start of the internet, then I've got a little clip uh, of uh, one of the pioneers of the internet, so-called fathers of the internet, a chap called um, uh, Kleinrock, and um, this is him uh, talking about uh, how the internet first started, and I should say, um, Larry Kleinrock is based in... um, UCLA in uh, California, and he's discussing uh, the first link, really, of what was then what was called ARPANET, and later went on to become uh, the Internet. So
1: our job had simply was to type in LOG. Now, up at the other end, there was another programmer waiting to watch all of this. And we had a telephone connection between these two telephone connection so they could talk to each other. What happened is, Charlie typed the L, and he asked, you get the L? And the answer was, got the L. He typed the O. You get the O, got the O. He typed the G. You get the G, wacko. The system crashed. This machine went down. So the very first message on the internet ever was low, as in low and behold.
0: Yeah, so that was Leonard Kleinrock explaining how uh, another uh, rather portentous message was the start of the uh, start of the internet, and uh, that was a communication between UCLA and uh, an organisation called SRI, so Stanford Research Institute. Uh, What Leonard also mentioned in that uh, clip was that they were using standard telephony in order to uh, sort of check whether this thing was working, and telephony and Data communication using sort of telephony-type circuits has a much uh, older history than the internet. And um, I thought I would just sort of briefly draw your attention to the difference between the two um, types of uh, communication. So on the left-hand side, your right-hand side, uh, we've got what might apply when we're talking about a telephony Uh, Telephony tends to be about streams of data, video, audio, and so on, and the order in which they arrive matters, that's what I mean by causal, so um, if we change the order of words in this sentence, it doesn't make sense, they have to arrive in the right order. Um, But you can stuff the signals down a finite bandwidth and still not corrupt them very much, and indeed some signal loss is tolerable in voice communication. Uh, which is helpful you know if you if there's some interruptions you say I'm sorry could you say that again Uh, so you can have some uh, you can have or you can guess what was said data aren't like that at all really data communications tends to be very bursty you know the computer doesn't do anything for a while then suddenly it needs to sort of dump huge amounts of data on you the order in which things arrive it might matter but it It often doesn't. We just want the data. We don't mind whether the last page arrives first. It doesn't really matter. We're going to assemble it all at the other end. Um, There's a benefit in having more bandwidth. We can send more data. We send it more quickly. Whereas, you know, we've only got one telephone line. We've only got one telephone call to make. We only need a telephone line. We don't need any more for that. But data loss is generally intolerable in the computer world. So these sort of rather different ways of communicating... um, uh, caused a bit of a problem in the early uh, sort of design of computer networks. So point-to-point communication between computers was well known, um, and um, generally, what you would do is you would use a telephone line, sometimes called a leased line. Um, and if you were a consumer, what you might do is you might buy a, a, one of these big boxes, which is called a modem. I um, don't know if you remember those. And uh, this is this is. Uh, this is one of the first well, i think this is the first british uh, modem actually it's called the Daytel modem model 1a wasn't the first first one was probably something called a bell model 101 uh, i i didn't trust any of the photographs on the internet of the bell 101 it seemed to look like a fridge which didn't seem to me uh, likely uh, so i've i've shown you this one instead and if you were a consumer you might communicate using something called a bulletin board so you would dial up uh, some remote computer And you would read all the messages on the bulletin board, and then you might add your own, and then you'd dial off. Um, It was a sort of blog, but you only had intermittent access to it. They're very, very important in the sort of mid-history of the uh, Internet. And... For business-to-business communication um, this was also quite common you know if you had a business with multiple sites you would lease a line in this country from BT or from in the USA from AT&T at at vast expense and then you would either permanently connect these two computers or you would dial them up uh, using uh, a box that looks like this Um, and that was really what the telcos the telecommunication companies thought computer communication should be like really partly and partly was technological they had sort of invested heavily in what's called circuit switching the idea of if you think of old-fashioned telephone operators saying who do you want to be connected to and plugging you in that's essentially what how a telephone system works even now Um, and that circuit switching idea was dominant but also the financials around circuit switching was dominant Telephone companies existed to charge you by the minute for voice calls. They didn't really know what to do with data. So, this was all sort of coming to, the, coming to a crunch in the sort of 70s when people realised that there was a potential for uh, computation. Um, before we get to the invention of the internet, however, I'd like to sort of call out a precursor to the internet that most people regard as sort of the precursor to the internet something uh, a network that wasn't the internet but is incredibly important and influential and to do that I'm going to we have to zoom across to Hawaii Um, so the University of Hawaii in those days had uh, this is I'm talking um, 1969 or so had um, four campuses in Hawaii and there weren't any leased lines that, or telephone lines that ran between them, you know, that were easily obtainable lines, but there were radio communications. So the, uh, the main uh, campus, which is shown here in, uh, in pink, uh, had a mainframe computer, and what the what, uh, scientists wanted to do was give remote people at the remote campuses access to that mainframe computer. So they devised this network called AlohaNet, uh, the the person behind it was Norman Abramson. Now I should just point out, you know, I mentioned Norman Abramson. I haven't mentioned the four or five collaborators who worked with him. That's really f- for want of time. I mean, all of, almost all of these developments were large team uh, developments. So do 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 go and consult um, Wikipedia, Google, or the usual sources if you want the full list of uh, uh, influencers here. Now, how did this work? Okay, well. Had two radio channels, and the first channel was very conventional. So they would send out a little message from the uh, first uh, station, which was where the mainframe was, and then that would radiate and it would hit all of the substations. So that's really easy. That's like broadcast radio, it's just broadcasting some data, no problem. Now, what about the return channel, though, or the, the, back, the backhaul, as it's sometimes called? Well, Uh, they only had two frequencies available to them, and one of them was used for the transmit. So all of the other stations had to share the other uh, frequency. Now, they could have done it, as I've just drawn it on this slide. Did you notice that they didn't all transmit at the same time? It was as if they were in a sort of rather synchronised you know, early dance, after you, after you, after you. That's called time multiplexing, where you divide the time into slots, and you say, your slot... Is here, and then your slot is here. That would have been a very conventional solution. The problem with time multiplexing, of course, is most of the time computers are quiet, so the slots are unoccupied, and then one of the computers has this desperate need to sort of burp all of the data or immediately, and it's only got one fiddly little time slot, so it's it's not very efficient, doesn't make efficient use of the bandwidth. Nevertheless, that would have been the conventional solution, or they could have used a different frequency for each station. That would have been another uh, solution. That's called frequency domain multiplexing. What they designed was something that was really just heresy at the time. I mean, it's just complete heresy. What they decided was that it wouldn't care if the pulses overlapped. So if one of the stations overlapped with another station of course there would be a great big mess and nobody would hear anything you would just hear a sort of jumble of signals it's called a collision in our parlance but what would happen is both stations would then back off for a random amount of time and try again so it's a bit like uh, one of those conversations that you'll have with people and you both talk at the same time. And you go, ooh, da Instead of doing after you, after you, after you, what, we sh- what you should do if you want to get efficiency is you should just throw the dice and you say, oh, yes, you got a one, I got a six. Well, you wait one second, I'll wait six seconds. You win. Right, you go. Okay? Now, that random back-off was one of the innovations of Net, which we're going to carry forward, which we have carried forward to the internet And this idea of what's called a contention network where each party shouts for space and if they get the shout, everyone else keeps quiet because they can hear them listening. That idea of contention has been taken forward on all of the networks across the whole of the uh, the known uh, planet. Uh, Quite radical and quite interesting and rather um, anarchic. I mean, definitely a highly anarchic system Okay, now, brief deviation. This problem of how to communicate in um, noisy or corrupted environments has actually been generalised into, well, it's now called the Byzantine generals problem. And to be fair, the Byzantine generals problem is a bit more general than what I'm talking about here. The real, the true Byzantine general problem is as follows, which is there are multiple generals on your side and they are all looking to attack. So in this case, uh, the, um, the uh, citizens here in blue are, the, on the, are on the tops of a hill, and they wish to attack the uh, enemy who are in pink at the bottom of the hill. If they coordinate their attack, they will win. Right? If they fail to coordinate, they will be slaughtered. So it's very important that they work out how to uh, coordinate an attack properly. Now, in the general Byzantine generals problem there are multiple generals and some of them are turncoats and some of them are liars okay now you can see why it has to be called Byzantine generals Leslie Amport, who wrote quite a lot on this problem um He was desperate to rename it because I think originally it was called the Chinese generals, uh, which doesn't, you know, it's not very flattering being thought of as a turncoat, is it? So he was going to rename it Albanian generals in the idea that there were no Albanians, Albanian being a closed society at the time. And then his friend pointed out there were lots of Albanians and they would be very upset. So it became Byzantine generals. Now, how does the Byzantine generals problem help us well actually as I formulated the Byzantine generals problem does not have a solution there isn't a perfect communication that can circumvent it but I can illustrate one of the features that was also a feature of a Lohar net and has become a feature of the internet and so it works like this general one decides to send a message off to general two and general one knows he or she knows full well that that message might be uh, intercepted and it might be corrupted Uh, So the message says something like, let's attack, you know, at at 5 o'clock this afternoon. And this general then acknowledges this message and sends it back. So in this case, so long as you have received an ACK back from the general which says, I acknowledge your message saying that we will attack at 5 p.m., then you have a little more security that you are both able to coordinate now, as I said, this is not a perfect solution. I mean, if you've got really Byzantine generals, of course, it might be a lie. Of course, they might have spoofed the message, but the ACK makes it much less likely that you will uh, have a problem. Now, in general, this, this idea is called um, ARQ, um, Automatic uh, Request, Receive Request, the idea that in order to have effective communication between two parties, you essentially repeat... Part of the message, or you acknowledge using some special signal um, part of the message, and it's a very important part of the internet protocol. And again, it was first developed in Aloha. Uh, Aloha, there are various ways you can deal with acts. Um, On some mediums, like wires, you can listen simultaneously uh, when you transmit to listen for collisions. So if you don't hear your own voice coming back at you, as it were, you know there's been a problem. On other ones, you use um, receipt requests. So you say, well, um, I sent this out, but I didn't get an ARQ. I didn't get an ACK back. Therefore, probably something's happened, so I'll send it again. Uh, So ARQ can work like that. Now, how does this all um, tie in to the Internet? Okay. Well, the Internet has a slightly later vintage than um, the... uh, than Net, and um, it, it, it started with a, a, a network known as ARPANET, uh, named after ARPA, which was the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was a, essentially a, a way of the U.S. military funding um, things that they thought important, and there have been various sort of conspiracy theories about why ARPA funded this network. they've all been denied, they weren't sort of, you know, some part of global domination or anything like that. As far as we can tell, they funded it because they were funding lots of research groups in different parts of the US and they got frustrated that they weren't communicating properly. And so they said, well, we'll fund a network that allows them to connect. The early versions of ARPANET didn't use the protocol that we're going to talk about, but the real uh, innovation was this protocol called IP, the Internet Protocol, and IP and all of the stuff associated with the internet has become... Um, it, it's, it's half about the standards and what you're doing. It's half about the bureaucracy of how those standards are introduced and regulated. I think it'd be fair to say that lots of internet pioneers would be horrified to hear me use the word bureaucracy. And they don't think of themselves as bureaucratic at all. But the standardisation of these protocols is very interesting and probably worth a lecture in its own right the what the, what actually happens is um these documents are published usually in plain text like this and they're called rfc's requests for comments um well i suppose you could comment on them really but they are they are in essence a statement of what is going to happen um what's curious about what's interesting about them is that they are a permanent record of what happened they don't get rescinded i mean they might might, might get, um, replaced Um, uh, and if that happens you can track you can track the replacement on the uh, on the website of the IETF the internet engineering task force Um, there's a fascinating lecture on YouTube actually about the bureaucracy of the internet and how it was briefly uh, tussled away from the uh, from the American uh, from ARPA who were responsible for it anyway this is the RFC for IP the internet protocol and what IP does is it specifies the format in which data should be sent and this is actually a quote from the most famous RFC in the world Um, and it looks like this I'm sorry it's such a grotty figure this is how they this is how they write them and I think in the interest of sort of historic um, uh, veracity uh, you can see the original Uh, I'm going to I'll just quickly explain it because you can see some of the features of um, your own internet connection in these diagrams so the first thing that comes is a number and the number says are we working with internet protocol version 4 which is almost everyone was until recently or 6 if it's 6 it says 6. the next one is just a number that tells us how long the header is going to be the next thing i want to comment on is how long the header plus the data is that's a sort of check because if that doesn't add up to what you've really got then something's happened then we've got some uh, flags or, or um, counters as to whether something can be fragmented. This is quite important in the, in, in the internet world. You can't rely on every part of the internet having exactly the same um, size of computer or machine. So you need a way of splitting the data into chunks And that's another difference between the sort of circuit-switched or telecommunications idea. Telecommunications tends to be associated with very rigid protocols, which everyone agrees. This is not a rigid protocol. This is a sort of marker saying, are you allowed to fragment this or not? I'll talk about this later. This is an example of forward error correction over here. This is um, a flag telling us whether this uh, bit of data is to do with controlling the network or whether it's got data in it at all. And then, this is an interesting one, this is how long this block of data is allowed to live in the network, usually measured in seconds. That's important for something like um, voice over IP. When when you're uh, trying to communicate with someone by voice, if your packets get lost in the network, they're not going to be delivered on time, so you just mark them with a time to live and the router sees them and says, oh, no, you've been around too long. Sorry, you're dead. And kills it, TTL. Um, what's this one? This is an identifier that allows you to reassemble the fragments if you need to. Down here, we have some security options and I'll talk a little bit about those later. And then it all ends on the end of a 32-bit block. And the bit that I probably forgotten to talk about but it's the most important bit is the source address and the destination address. Now what is implicit in all of this but perhaps is isn't obvious is what this says is if you want to communicate on this network that we're calling the internet you your computer should construct a block of data like that and attach it to the data that it wants to send. It's sort of, it's a bit like a postcard. It's got the information on the card that you want to send and it's got the address on the front of it. And it just slings it off into the network, just like a postcard. Um, Just as you don't particularly worry about how your postcard got to you, uh, you don't worry how the post office chose to deliver it. You just worry whether it arrives or not. This is exactly the same um, idea. And this is what we mean by a packet of data. Uh, You'll see the word datagram used, which I'm not very fond of, but it is is a popular word, data combined with gram as in telegram. So this is what the header of a packet of data looks like. Now, what does the actual data look like? Okay, well, a couple of observations about this um, before we move on this is obviously quite complicated you know it's sort of fiddly and intricate isn't it you look at it and you think oh dear imagine writing a program to strip out all of that stuff you know it's it's, it's quite sort of fiddly and getting all of these fiddly bits together was the job of the rfc editor who was a man called john postel he's famous for postel's law which is the way you should deal with um these packets coming into a computer and ba- basically it says it if they're a bit of a mess coming in, you should listen to them and try and work out what's been going on, but you should not send out packets that are malformed. Again, that's, that's Postel's law, which is the sort of famous law of um, internet engineers. Now then, the internet protocol is the simplest of protocols, and you can see already that it's got some issues. I mean, the, the first one that may be evident to you is well, my computer's got lots of things going on. You know, it's got a web browser going on and it's got music being listened to and all those sorts of things. How do all these packets sort of get rooted when they get into my computer? Ah, well, to do that, we need uh, some additional addressing. And so this is where the user datagram protocol comes in, which is the simplest protocol I could find. This yellow stuff, that's the bit I've just been talking about. So that's the header. So I've called it the IP header. What we've got down here in green are two additional destinations and these are a bit like sort of um, they're called ports they are internal addresses within your computer so um, for example uh, port 80 is conventionally used for your web traffic so um, if something arrives and it's got port 80 in here then your computer knows to send it to your web browser so that your web browser can deal with it and assemble the packets into something meaningful. Uh, We've also got some additional stuff here, like how long it's meant to be and the checksum. It's quite a few of these little checks around the place, you've noticed, and I'll talk a bit about them. And then comes the data. It doesn't specify what the data is. That's entirely up to the two computers that are talking to each other. Of course, there are protocols for certain types of data, you know, web data and so on. Now, what about these checksums and checks and lengths and all that sort of stuff? Right, that's a fascinating topic in its own right. It's called forward error correction. And um, so here's the question: Um, How do you know if some data in front of you has been corrupted? Interesting question, isn't it? I mean, what you would do normally if you were, say, an English reader is you would look at the text and you would say, "This looks like gibberish." You know, you're using your semantic understanding of the text to say, "Well, there isn't a word like that." Oh, I can work out what's happened. They've replaced an A, or they've missed this letter. That's a sort of semantic check. Computers don't do that, at least at this level, they don't. What they do is they augment the data with checks and, and balances. The simplest check you can think of is something called parity. So you count up the number of ones in the data block. If it's an odd number, then you add a one. Okay, that's... I always get this the wrong way around. I think that's odd parity. Yes, correct. Or um, well, there's even parity. Oh, well, i am make up the number to be even um, or you could sum the number of ones in the data right that's called a checksum so you could say well there are uh, 500 ones in this data so i'll write f- the number 500 into one of the checksum fields in fact there's an interesting set of codes that not only allow you to know that something's been corrupted they carry enough information for you to correct it How cool is that, right? that's a bit like a, that's a postcard that's got all smudged, and um, you sort of, you give it a shake, and somehow it rewrites itself to be as it was written originally. They're very fascinating. Uh, There's a whole lecture to be written about those codes. They're called uh, Forward Error Correcting Codes. The the person who thought of them was a guy called Richard Hamming. Um, And Hamming, an interesting man, he shared an office with um, Claude Shannon, the man who invented information. Now, I'm sure you've noticed so far that essentially this, this doesn't quite sort of bear, doesn't quite fit with what you're used to on the internet. I mean, what I'm describing here is something that sort of slings packets out and they might come back, they might not. You know, it's just a, it's just a fire and forget protocol. And uh, you might feel like that's, that's happening sometimes on the internet, but it isn't. You know, I mean, mostly you've got reliable communication. So in order to do that, you need another protocol and that's called TCP transmission control protocol you'll often hear them said together in polite company tcp ip they often they go together like more common wise you know they're they're pairs now the tcp is like a bucket brigade um if you don't know a bucket brigade it's a bucket brigade is a way that um, a fire service might put out of a fire you form a great big long uh line of firefighters and one gets the water out of here and they pass the water from one to the other and pass it over that. I couldn't find a, a YouTube video of a bucket brigade, uh, so I found something similar. So this is my sort of visual illustration of uh, TCP. Perfect. Now, I'm not sure that's approved by British building practices, but um, you get the idea. And um, what's happening there is that there is some complex interaction between the members of the bucket brigade over to you, and so on and so on. And that's what TCP does. TCP is an ARQ protocol. It has these acknowledges built into it. And um, it looks a bit repulsive, doesn't it, on the screen, but it's not that bad. This is the old... IP header that I explained earlier and this isn't a UDP header this is a new header it looks a bit like it it's called a TCP header has these ports these are where do you route it in your block of flats if you like but it has some additional features in here namely an acknowledgement number and TCP allows computers to what's called handshake each other so This is an example of the famous three-way handshake that goes on at TCP. So TCP, first, if A wants to communicate with B, what happens is A says to B, I want to communicate with you, and uh, my sequence number is X. That means uh, the number I'm assigning to the first one of my packets is is X. And then B says back to A, ah, yes, I acknowledge your sequence number is X. Thank you, that's the ARQ, that's the, you know, if there are any Byzantine generals lurking around, that's dealing with uh, interference and all that sort of things. And then B says again to it, and my sequence number is Y. And A says, ah, oh, I acknowledge your sequence number is Y. So we've got this double, treble sort of handshake going on. At the end of it, they've established communication. So now, when A or B sends a packet, it has this unique number in it, the sequence number here, and they can be assembled in the right order at the other end. So this is very important because it, it means that as far as the programmer is concerned for TCP, they've, it's a bit like opening a telephone circuit. So you can now just fire packets at a TCP port and they get assembled as if by magic the other end. They're not travelling through the network in order. Right? Far from it. Some of them are going via Moscow and some of them are going via... I don't know Miami, but they all get assembled at the far end. So, as far as the programmer is concerned, you've got this easy to handle programming model, and that's really, I think, why TCP/IP is so popular. Well, TCP/IP originally was implemented on a system called an IMP, and this sort of thing on the uh, right-hand side here, which is the size of a refrigerator, is the interface message passing uh, computer. Uh, imp- and it was devised by a very interesting company called Bolt, Berenick and Newman, who are now part of Raytheon, I think. Uh, BBN uh, or BBNM, um, they were given the presidential, one of the Presidential Medals of Honour um, under the last president, I think. Um, the last but one president, Obama and because they were so important they actually started as an acoustics company but and for various reasons which you'll have to go and read about yourself they got into the internet and were very very influential and did some brilliant engineering at very short notice um uh, but it's also been implemented over um carrier pigeon okay this is this is the only picture i could find of carrier pigeon uh, short notice this is um speckled jim from uh blackadder um uh, So it's fundamentally this block-based protocol that gives a convincing impression of uh, continuous data flow as far as programmers go. Right, ladies and gentlemen, you now know as much as you need to know, I think probably more, uh, about TCP IP. Now, you've probably got some questions. I I know I I had when I sort of went through this. I mean, the first question is sort of, how does anyone know an address? That's a bit like the post office question. How do I know your address uh, to send you a letter? Well, you tell me it. Um, is one answer there's a central registry is the um, answer to that one uh called a domain name service and the domain name service allows you to convert uh human uh forms of addresses like www.google.com into uh, a number what about these collisions i haven't said very much about that well i'll talk about that in a moment and then there's another one that might occur to you is everything's in the open here, you know, the data, the addresses, the ports, anyone can listen and read, isn't that slightly um, alarming, you know, so, so here are my answers to those things, so the idea, the addressing protocol is not really very difficult to, to deal with, there's a distributed set of addresses, and um, the idea is that you're Where your uh, computer is pointed at the nearest available set of addresses and if it doesn't know the address it asks another address server and so on and so on until either it's not resolved or or, um, or it is resolved so that's an easy one however congestion that is an interesting question particularly as almost everyone on this call will have spent months recently on zoom or teams calls bemoaning their Internet bandwidth, and presumably, I was going to say, shouting at their children upstairs to stop uh, internet gaming. But of course, it might be the other way around. Maybe, maybe the internet gamers are watching this, and um, it, it's, uh, they're shouting at their parents to get off a stupid Zoom call with work. Um, so this is a map of the uh, ARPANET as it was in 1984, it, it moved around a bit in the early years and uh, the eagle-eyed people might spot that poor old Britain isn't even on the, even on the network. It sort of, we dropped on and off uh, ARPANET uh, in IP because we couldn't decide. A lot of Europe couldn't decide whether this IP thing was a good idea and there was a bit of a debate actually earlier on as to whether... Uh, the internet should be based on internet protocol. There's great suspicion about these contention networks. We didn't really like them and they're not very controlled and the telecommunications company didn't like them. Anyway, there's a little cluster up here in the left-hand side of um, the internet which connects uh, the universities of Berkeley in California, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and LBL, which I think stands for the Livermore Berkeley Laboratory. LBL and... um, Berkeley are about 400 meters uh, apart you know, but they're connected by a, a, bit, a bit of a circuitous uh, route going by Lawrence Livermore and um, there was a bit of a curiosity going on because um, in the 80s um, the internet just died. Um, it, it sort of The internet crashed so um, I want to talk a little bit about that and what's And in order to do that, I want to say a little bit about how TCP uh, communicates using this ARQ protocol. So what you might imagine happens is when we're dealing with TCP is it sends off a A sends off a packet to B and B sends back an acknowledge. So you've got this to and flow of information. So this is an example of communication using a single packet window. And it's horrendously inefficient because the amount of time it takes for this packet to cross, say, the ocean or uh, some satellite link or something, I could have sent more packets. So this is communi- a terrible communication mechanism in the sense that, you know, one side goes, "Hello." "Oh, hello." Yeah. It's a great, big pauses. So there's a tremendous pressure to not do this, and to use larger TCP windows. That would be more efficient. So let's put, you know four of them together and only send back a single acknowledge when we get all four. Now we can do this with TCP because the packets are ordered. So although they might not travel in like a little train, we can assemble them so they look a bit like a train. So that's a sort of practical uh, proposition. And um, we often say that TCP therefore is self-timed using the acknowledgement Uh, signals so larger windows make more efficient use of the link but and I'm sure you're ahead of me the larger you send these bursts the larger these bursts are that you send the more you're sort of dominating the whole link so the more likely it is that you're either locking out other people or causing congestion and when you've got congestion um, the way the internet works is you back off. So is it, oh, I didn't get an acknowledgement back. Oh, well, I'll wait for a bit of time and I'll resend the data. So it's a bit like one of those irritating people at dinner parties who keep telling you the same old thing again, you know, it, because you failed to give them a, a positive acknowledgement. You sort of went, oh, yes, yes. You know, they tell you it again. Very irritating. My recommendation is to be more like uh, the internet and say, yes, thank you. We've heard that long enough. Uh, that will as a positive acknowledgement, and might shut them up. So, none of this was really sorted out. And in 1986, the internet crashed. And uh, uh, it, it was this guy, Vin uh, Jacobson, who realised what was going on. And he produced this little, early little graph of the problem. And what he's got here, what he's plotted here, is the send time across one of these links. And the packet sequence number, so TCP has sequence packets. So what you'd expect this is to go up. You wouldn't expect it to do this. This is a Is oh no, all the way back to packet ten again. Oh so no packet fifty. Oh dear oh dear dear dear. And this had sort of essentially took quite a speedy link down to almost nothing. And that was the beginning of congestion control. And congestion tro- control is a hot topic in the um, internet of today. I'll just sort of briefly explain how it works. The idea is that... Um, so why don't we just start slinging data down the, uh, the network? The answer to that is we don't really know how much bandwidth we've got available because it's a distributed network and it could change. So that leads us to uh, an algorithm... And this is Jacobson's first uh, algorithm. They're named after places. So this is TCP Tahoe. And it's an additive increase multiplicative decrease uh, algorithm, AIMD. So what you do is you start with a single packet. And you say, here's my first packet. And you get an acknowledgement back. And you think, oh, great, that worked. Next time, I'll send two packets. I'll get an acknowledgement back. Oh, next time, I'll send three packets. Next time, I'll send four packets. And we keep doing that until we reach the advertised buffer size of the receiver. And uh, I don't expect you to remember this, but there was in the protocol a possibility for the receiver to say, this is, this is how much data I'm expecting uh, each time. So and we, that, once that has reached that maximum buffer size, that's fantastic. And we're now throwing data down, and we're getting good channel utilisation, as people would say. We keep doing that until we don't get an acknowledgement back. At the moment we don't get an acknowledgement back, we, we're going to we assume we've got congestion. And the assum- a sort of safe assumption with congestion is that you had sole use of a link. So if someone else came along and caused congestion, there's now two of you trying to contend for the link. So let's halve the window size. So we'll give that other person 50%. It's a very sort of uh, fair and um, socialist um, uh, sort of thinking. So that tends to lead to a pattern of transmission and back-off that looks like a sawtooth. You've got this increase and the drop, an increase and a drop. And you put all these sawtooths together and that's how the internet, that's how it works. And uh, when you're doing that properly, it's called riding the sawtooth. So if you hear people about riding the sawtooth, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about uh, an adaptive congestion control, beautifully adapting to the... Uh, the stochastic nature of the channel now you might be saying oh come on Richard you know this is all very sort of arcane and wasn't it all sorted out in the in the 80s and it can't really be a, a topic for current conversation but that's not true it is very much a topic for conversation so um if you're if you're wondering why your um, internet isn't working at home I mean there might be multiple reasons but I mean have a look at Bufferbloat.net, which is a, a fascinating website run, I think, by Jim Gettys and Dave Tart, uh, who um, are just sort of, you know, enthusiasts really looking at uh, for looking at congestion problems. And what they pointed out is um, this situation can easily occur even with modern congestion control. So let's imagine you're doing a backup uh, from your computer to a server. So you're going to send out some packets, and those packets pretty much fill up the buffer of the uh, server and they fill up the channel. I don't think I said what a buffer is. A buffer is a queue, right? It's a block of memory that serves as a a queue. First in, first out, um, uh, queue. Now, once it's got here, I'm sort of indicating that we've reached your modem. It Probably has a big buffer in it as well. So as we start to fill up that big modem, the modem is communicating back to your computer and it's giving it acknowledgements. And at the moment, it's giving positive acknowledgements. It's saying, well, I'm not full. Keep sending me the data. Keep sending it to me. And your computer's loving this. You know, it's just piling stuff into the data and as fast as it can go. So you're giving this very convincing impression of everything working perfectly. Meanwhile, you decide to do a bit of web surfing because it's taking a bit of a while to do this backup. Now, web surfing also takes place via TCPIP, so that's got a bi-directional protocol. Both of you are sending acknowledgements. Um, opening a web page has quite a few little handshakes going on as a what addresses this then and have you received this data? Yes, I've received it, all that sort of stuff. The trouble is your buffer's full with all of this backup stuff. So your acknowledgements don't get through. And because they don't get through, um, the web server that's trying to communicate with you just says, oh, well, he must be on a bit of wet string. I'll just throttle back my bandwidth because I don't need to deal with you. So that's buffer bloat. And it's an example of how sort of dark buffers in the internet can cause havoc. And to be honest, they're not causing havoc with bandwidth. Bandwidth isn't really the issue here. Most people's internet connections are big enough. You know, if you, If you work out what sort of internet connection you need in order to be able to stream a Netflix film, do a Zoom call, do a couple of internet telephonies and a bit of gaming, you've probably got enough already. The problem is latency. And latency, which is these delays between people, that is what, you know, buffer bloat is a latency problem. And it's it's caused by it because all of the data is sitting there in the queue waiting to get there. So if you want a quick analogy, um, you're going to a restaurant and... um, there's a queue outside the restaurant, that's the buffer, and um, it doesn't look so big. So you, you, you say, well, well, let's get in this queue. Great. Then the, the maitre d'hôtel sort of takes you from the head of the queue and weaves you into the restaurant. And in the restaurant, you discover there's this vast queue, huge queue. Well, you'd never have gone in if you'd known there was this huge queue. And... Um, You absolutely wait there for ages. Meanwhile, there are takeout orders. And those guys, I mean, I'm sure you know what happens with a takeout. It gets cooked, it gets put on the side. And by the time you get it, it's freezing cold. So they really need to be serviced immediately. They're the equivalent for your voice over IP packets arriving at this buffer saying, we need to get through. The buffer's full, the queue is full. So that's what's happening. Now, what's the solution to this? It's a very interesting one. um, And one that's very common to you. The solution is just as the solution with the restaurant. The solution with the restaurant is one, not to have unscrupulous maitre d's who take people into secret queues, but also to put out a sign which says, we're full, go away, right? That's called tail drop. And tail drop is where we deliberately shorten the buffers and we just drop packets. As soon as we drop packets, uh, the upstream version of the internet, your computer and so on will realize there's a problem and they will throttle back to make sure that the buffers don't get over full, and the bandwidth control all works again. So dropped packets trigger the multiple increase. Tail drops, are, I say it's fascinating because there's a very interesting book by uh, Brian Christensen and, and others on them, um, Algorithms to Live By, which talks about how understanding computer science algorithms can be fasc- can, can help your life. And he, he draws perhaps rather stretched parallels with tail drop, with other things. The one that I like is... Um, you know, you're probably your employer says when you go away on holiday, you should have an out of office reply on your email, and it will say something like, oh, "I'm sorry, I'm away, you know, enjoying myself." Um, but uh, your email will be attended to when I return. Right? That's the equivalent of a vast buffer. I don't know if you've ever retend, returned from holiday to find 800 emails in your inbox, and you think, "Why did I promise to attend to these things? It's madness." What you should have said was tail drop. You should said, "Your email will not be attended to. Right? Find someone else." Right? That is the correct protocol, and tail drop is an important protocol for a lot of things and is perhaps under, under, uh, underused. Now, security. You've got these packets whizzing around between people, and they're human-readable. So if that was all that was happening, two people connected via wire, we wouldn't worry. But in practice, there's often a third person, and they might be malicious, an interloper uh, like this. And so they, Or they might be not malicious at all. They might just be accidentally in the chain. And there's lots of ways. If you're interested in computer security, you know, there are lots of ways that you can uh, insert yourself in there. So if, you, if you're on a Wi-Fi network, for example, you set up something called a Wi-Fi pineapple. And uh, a Wi-Fi pineapple is, um, is a, a Wi-Fi service that looks like the open Wi-Fi network that you thought you were going to connect to. You know? So you're in an airport seems so long ago in the pandemic, doesn't it? You're in an airport and you, know, you see a, a BT open zone or an AT&T uh, server there and you, you think, well, I'll connect to it. And it's not a genuine one. It's something pretending to be the AT&T server. It pretends all the web pages, but it captures your data. It's called a man-in-the-middle attack. So what can be done about this? Well, you know, the, the obvious sort of solution uh, is encryption. So just sort of thinking about this packet structure again, we could encrypt this bit, which is the data, because people argue that's the bit that matters. Well, uh, lots of things do that. When you use HTTPS on the website, that, that's what it does. It encrypts this, but it doesn't encrypt this bit here, the header. And that doesn't give you superb security, because it means anyone who can sit there can work out what's going on. You know, uh, so uh, it's called that, doing that is called traffic analysis. So the solution two, which is often combined with encryption, is to control the routing. The internet is fundamentally sort of anarchic routing. You know, the idea is that packets can go anywhere and you shouldn't worry about it. But a virtual private network, or a VPN, is an attempt to control the routing. And the way it works is you're not allowed to, you not encouraged to connect to the internet, you connect to a machine that is in some strong room somewhere virtual strong room in usually in your employer's basement and you absolutely you this connection here is totally encrypted meaning they can see that your people interlopers can see you're communicating with this machine but they can't see any of this any of the addresses that you're subsequently using because they are themselves wrapped in a packet this thing strips off the packet and sends it out into the internet or wherever so that's how a VPN works. It essentially rewrites the headers of your um, internet traffic, and then the service that you're trying to access sends it back to this VPN machine, and uh, it then sends it back to you, and you then decrypt it. And it's hell on earth for a lot of employees, because these things are slow. You know, in my experience, everyone says, oh, you use a VPN. Yeah, you try using the ones that most people have access to. They're really slow. Uh, but controlling the routing in this way is, is one attempt at security. However, I thought I'd talk about one that was just a little bit more um, current than the VPN. And to do that, I just need to sort of briefly explain something about how this routing works. So if you are in some remote country, and I've picked a country that happens to make uh, a great use of this technology, uh, Syria... Syrians are very keen on this technology for reasons that you might imagine. Um, your packets go through a series of hops. So uh, the other day, I measured uh, my uh, path to uh, Google from my house, and I measured ten hops to get to Google, and it took them about six milliseconds to get there, which is an appallingly long time, I must say. It shouldn't take ten milliseconds to get to, uh, to six milliseconds to get to anywhere, but you'd probably go up to the moon and back in that time. But you know, it, that's what it is. This path is quite convoluted. And obviously you're worried about this path because anyone along this path could read your packets. And you might think that just asking for news from the BBC website is not a very, you know, who cares? Uh, There are quite a few parts of the world where people do care very much whether you're accessing that news website. So the the solution uh, proposed is up here on the slide. It's called the Onion Router or Tor. And you'll see people refer to Tor browsers and, or it's, it's sort of rather hagiographically referred to as the dark web. Um, I'm not quite sure why it's the dark web, but, you know, it, it's used uh, for security. The original ideas here were funded by the Office of Naval Research in the United States of America. And they needed a way for people in foreign territories that, weren't, that might be hostile to the United States to be able to communicate safely, even though the path might be controlled by avert by others. And it makes use of a protocol called SOX, which is a proxy protocol. And what proxy does is it rewrites your internet headers to make it look like they came from that device. So I send, say, my web traffic to a proxy. The proxy strikes out my uh, address, which is on the packet, puts its address in its place, sends it off. And when it comes back by a fancy bit of technology, it says, oh, yes, I know that was on a Richard's packet. I'll send it back. So that's fine because a proxy can obscure the uh, the, both, the the both back of a chain, if you like. So that's good. But what about if the proxy is owned by some uh, foreign power or somebody who wants to do you some harm or just listen to you? Um, what can you do? This was the clever thing about the Tor. What Tor did was it, your computer... Uh, it has a path through which it's going to send its things and it communicates with each one of these to get a secret key that allows it to encrypt the packet. So firstly it encrypts its packet with uh, the secret key for node 4 then node 3 and then node 2 and node 1. Off goes its packet it hits node 1. Node 1 removes the encryption and sends it on to node 2. Node 2 doesn't know about your computer at this point. It only knows it's come from node one. And the only thing node two can do is strip off the encryption. And what it discovers when it strips off the encryption is yet more encryption. So if node two was captured by an enemy agent, they can't get, They don't know who you are. They don't know where you're going. They know where this came from. But this, this also has to be captured by an enemy agent. So that's the basis of, of Tor. It's very tricky to capture the whole of this network so you can see how it works you just send off these packets and the onion is the uh, the onion leaves of encryption and these are quite long unconvoluted paths which is why tor is quite slow uh thing to work and eventually uh, in this case our service gets a you know a request for some news and the whole thing happens in reverse on the way back great um and tor is sort of um it's, a high, it's highly disliked by a number of uh, politicians who feel that they jolly well ought to be able to um, see everything on the internet. Um, but often and the American security services them compla- have themselves complained about the use of Tor for nefarious things. Uh, the irony is, is, you know, it's a curious one, isn't it, that a system developed by them has in fact become known for uh, protecting people's uh, privacy. It's a it's a neutral technology in the sense it has positive and negative benefits. But that's the, ba- that's the basis of Tor. Now then, there seems to be a lot to me that I haven't talked about in uh, this uh, lecture on networks and some things I regret not talking about. I hardly said anything about wireless. Um, and yeah, wireless is really important. There's tremendous consumer pressure for wireless communication. Nobody wants wires dangling around their houses. But obviously, the problems of congestion and security are much more serious when it comes to wireless and they're not solved you know there's a lot of work going on at the moment on better uh, security and uh, access protocols for wireless latency we have talked about it's the Achilles heel of TCP things take a while if you've ever tried to have a choir practice on the internet it's a nightmare because not only does it take a while for your audio to reach the other side each person has a different latency so you're all singing literally to the different almost to a different song sheet. I haven't talked about the internet of things, which is a fascinating topic in its own right. If you're interested in that, there's a very good Gresham lecture by Martin Thomas, which talks about the internet of things. It's perhaps a little bit gloomy as there are some security issues with IoT and that's that's true as of now, um, but they might get solved. Security and privacy I've touched upon, but I think it's such a fascinating topic that it really deserves a lecture in its own right. And in fact, that is the topic of the next lecture which is the future of computer security. If you want a primer on computer security, I thoroughly recommend a lecture by Tara Wheeler, uh, which took place here at Gresham College a few weeks ago, and she was talking about whether these sorts of uh, nefarious deeds can be considered to be war crimes. Thank you. Thank
1: you very much, Professor Harvey. My my name's Simon Thurley, I'm the provost of the college, and um, I've been... Scooping up a couple of questions for you. Um, uh, first of all, you will be amused to hear a piece of chat. Um, Anna G from the USA says, um, here in the US, sometimes it's the parents playing games online yeah. and the children <laughs> attending classes on Zoom.
0: As soon as I said that, I knew it would be the other way around. I knew that there would be, it would be the other way around. It would be the kids doing Zoom and the parents uh,
1: playing Candy Crush. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, here we have someone who didn't quite catch what you said, just wants a bit of clarification. What is the name of the lecture online about the development of RFCs, or something, and something about being tussled away? Ah, yes, so there's, um, I wish I could remember, you'll have to search
0: on YouTube, there's a... um... It's the history of the IETF. It is a, uh, is a rather long presentation by one of the founder members of the Internet, and I'm afraid the name escapes me, but I will post it in the, uh, in the chat when I, get, when I get back home.
1: Great. If you could, that'd be fantastic. Um, and the other question we have this evening is, what recommendations do you have for further learning about the underpinnings of the Internet, including its technologies and their security? Well, you know, the RFCs, I mean, it seems bizarre to say read the
0: RFCs, but they're very readable. And if you read them in historical order, they are super great. And that's what I went back to to prepare this lecture because what I discovered was there's a lot of people giving overly simplified versions of the internet, which is a bit unacceptable. So I recommend actually the RFCs. Start from there.
1: Professor Harvey, thank you very much.
0: Thank you.